is a pleasure always to be here. And I just want to start off by saying thank you to Long Island Alliance Church and to um, those, I don't want to call out any names because it might be quite private, those who have helped uh, Donna Batiste Ministries put on the Seed to Harvest Seminar. It is a seminar that we do to help people who are underemployed and unemployed learn how to start their own business. And it's also a seminar that helps people to learn how to start uh, non-for-profit um, organizations. Over the years, we have had people who have started two mission agencies. One is Tiger Bay Compassion Ministries, which is ministering in uh, Guyana, South America. And another is First Chance Child International Ministries, which was started, both started through um, the Seed to Harvest, and now they're ministering in Haiti. We have had people who have started businesses like Local Solutions and Ego Productions, which uh, had their agency already, but having come to Seed to Harvest was able to take it a bit more. So I, I come here personally to say thank you, Pastor, and thank you to the church and those who have helped in a private manner. And um, in the mail will be coming a package that would give an idea of what we do. So I wanted to take time before I start to say thank you because sometimes, you know, people take things for granted that people give to a ministry and people give sacrificially and people take it for granted and fail to say thank you. But I want you to know I'm very appreciative. And I would like you guys to be praying because we will be doing one again this year because the aim is really to help um, really involved in community development, which we call our home missions. Amen. So I want to thank you for that. And also thank you for the support of our radio program. We have a radio program on WMCA that comes on at 9.30, um, no, 9 o'clock on Mondays. And this radio program goes all around the world. So I want to thank you as well. Well, I come today with um, the message God gave me really came out of hearing a mother complain about one of her children, a mother who has been faithful in attending church. And she said, you know, uh, my son is very discouraged. He really is not excited about the church because he felt that we were not living the Christian life as we ought to be living it. And so that turned him off. But I'm here this morning because I'm here with kind of a rough message. And I want to really, it's a message given mainly to our young people, but to all of us at the same time. Because what has happened is that in the pew, hmm, research of August 2016, it talked about how our young people are pretty much leaving the church in droves. As a matter of fact, right now they say out of all the millennials who call themselves Christians, there are only about 35, 35% who are actually affiliated with the church. As a matter of fact, a good majority of millennials, young people, don't even consider themselves religious in any sense of the word. 
They consider themselves, they don't have a religion, they don't have a faith, they just have nothing. So they call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. What a name to give a group of people. And I'm tired, you know, I, I, I got to say this, I'm tired of um, these secular organizations putting names to a young people that they have no right to. How dare they call young people a bunch of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nothing. That's what they're basically saying. But I am here this morning because I want to challenge all of us in our faith today. I'm really tired of seeing sometimes how the church is so beaten down in the media. Every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ should at least once in his or her life ask the question, who is this Jesus Christ that I follow? The title of the message is, who is this Jesus? And I hope by the time you leave here this morning that you will have a good grasp of who Jesus Christ is. Parents that you would have a good grasp. Young people that you would have a good grasp. Because a church is only as good, a denomination of faith is only as good as the next generation. In asking the question, the person should then take the Bible and begin to do a search. There are so many of us who have grown up in the church and for some reason or another have never taken time to do a deep study on the one you claim to follow. Over the years, the church and therefore the name of Jesus Christ have come under attack and ridicule and many of us don't even know how to stand up for and to defend the faith. We are called to take the gospel to the world, yet some of us may not even be able to defend the Christ of the Bible. I ask you this morning, every single one sitting here, who is this Jesus Christ that you worship? If someone were to stop you on the street, can you give them an answer? Can you give a clear, biblical, correct explanation on who is Jesus Christ? In this age of relevancy, which says follow your own truth, and that is so sick, I'm tired of hearing people talking about follow your own truth. That is to say what is true for you is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. I will not judge you, and you will not judge me. Live your life as you see fit, people say today. And what the world has done is to fit Jesus into their own relevant little box which fit their lifestyle and has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not the gospel that has to do with the Bible. Listen, I googled Jesus. I just wanted to see what the world thought about Jesus. You know, you can google anything. So I googled Jesus and guess what, what came up? Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a kind man. Jesus is a loving man. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is a prophet. Some other faiths, when it came up, they say they believe that Jesus Christ is Savior, but he's not God. One among them went so far as to believe that Jesus and Satan were created at the same time, thus hinting that Jesus and Satan are brothers. There are even those that believe that, yet yeah, Jesus came, Jesus was our Savior, but Jesus was sinful. Saints of God, you have to know what you believe. 
But many of us are losing the power of that belief. This is worse among our young people and even Barnard did a survey that showed that our young people are losing their faith, they're losing their confidence, and they're leaving the church of Jesus Christ. This is why I came with this sermon today. It is very, very important. And that's why the Lord led me to this book, the book of John. Saints of God, you have to know what you believe, but many of us are losing that power. The writer of the first book of John was the Apostle John. By the time of the writing of this epistle, all the other apostles had died. They were killed, martyred for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. John, as a matter of fact, was the only disciple who died of natural causes. He wrote this epistle during the closing years of his life. And because, you see, there was a heresy called Gnosticism, which was circulating around the church. I'll explain it as I go on. To stand up against this perversive heresy, this false teaching, the Apostle John wrote to expose it for it. The Apostle John wrote to expose it for the fallacy that that it was. He wanted to carefully and boldly state who Jesus Christ was and is. So who was this Jesus? What does Apostle John tell us about Jesus? One, that he is God. So we will look at Jesus Christ and his deity. Secondly, we will look at he is human. So we will look at his humanity. And John also tells us that he is our savior. So we will look at Christ as our savior. Our first point, we will look at what first John says about who is this Jesus. We will see that he is God as we look at Jesus and his deity. When we talk about the deity, we are talking about the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is God. I will look at several verses which will give proof to the fact that Jesus is indeed God. So I want to look at, if you can do for me, please, if you can put up on the screen just the first few verses, I would appreciate it, like we had for the first reading, because I want you to see it and to follow with me. This is what John says in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 1. This which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, um, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with him. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. The challenge and the reason for John's writing this epistle, as I said before, was a false teaching called Gnosticism, which caused John to be very thorough in the writing of this defense of the gospel. It was a false teaching that was a great threat to the early church. Like there's so much teaching today that is a threat to the church. 
the Gnostics believed that matter and flesh was evil and the spirit was good. Therefore, anything done in and through the body, whether it was good or bad, did not matter because divine life existed only in the realm of the spirit. So basically what they were saying, flesh bad, spirit good. All right? So if one sinned, it meant nothing because the body was already evil. So keep on sinning. You're evil already, so keep on going. The second thing they believed was that only a privileged few had the wisdom of a higher truth or higher knowledge. This they called Gnosticism, and it comes from the word gnosis, which means to know. This truth, this knowledge that they say came out of the, sorry, this truth, this knowledge they would say came not from the Bible, but from knowledge, but from those who were able to live on a higher spiritual, mystical plane. In other words, they believed that they had a special, higher, and deeper knowledge of God. Salvation for them was gained not through Jesus Christ, but through acquiring this special, mystical, divine knowledge. When you got into this realm of divine knowledge, then you were saved. They were saying that Christ's physical body was not a real body, but a spirit that walked upon the earth, that the spirit came upon him at baptism and left before his crucifixion. Because of this false or heretical teaching, the apostle John, one of those who was the closest to Jesus Christ, had to expose this lie and show that Jesus Christ was divine, but yet human at the same time. The verses that I read confirm to us in John 1, chapter, the first part of chapter 1, verse 3, the second part of verse 3, um, the second part of uh, chapters, verse 7, and then 9 and 10. All of these verses confirm the deity of Jesus Christ, which means when we speak of the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is divine. We were talking about him, that the fact he was God. John began by showing that Jesus was equal with God and that he had the same characteristics or fancy word attributes as God and that Jesus himself declared to be God. Listen, what John wrote, he said, Jesus was at the beginning because the first verse says, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we had seen with our eyes, which we looked on talking about Jesus Christ. As he's, he's using these verses to bring to mind the deity of Christ in that he was there with God from the beginning. You remember Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. So when he starts with this, immediately people's mind goes to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Then in John chapter 1, verse 1, not this one, but the, the book of John, where he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Again, showing that Jesus was there from the very beginning. Now in 1 John chapter uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he starts off his book by saying, that which was from the beginning. 
John was hinting here that Christ was eternal. And in verse 2, he makes it very clear when he wrote that Christ, the eternal life, which was with the Father. Jesus is eternal, and we know that only God is eternal. Man had a beginning. Every spirit on this earth had a beginning. Satan had a beginning. Only Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are eternal, meaning they never had a beginning. And pastor, I have to come back one day and teach about eternity. Because you see, we don't understand eternity. Eternity has nothing to do with time. Time was not formed until the fourth day. So what happened before that? There was no time, nothing to mark day or night, nothing to mark seasons. What it showed is that there was something always was, had no beginning, and it had no end. Secondly, the apostle went even further to show the deity of Christ in verse 3. He called Jesus his son, Jesus Christ. The son means equality with God. If you don't believe me, look at, let's turn to John chapter 10, verse 30 to 39. If you have your Bible, your iPad or whatever, let's, let's get there. John chapter 10, verses 30 to 39. And why I'm giving you these things because I want you to be able to teach somebody this. I want so that when you leave this place, you'll be able to give verbal affirmation as to what you believe about Jesus Christ. I want you to hear what Jesus said about himself. I, in verse 40, sorry, verse 30 of John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stone to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods if you call them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy when, because I said I am God's son? Do, do, not believe, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped from their grasp. So the fact that Jesus was calling himself the Son of God is equating himself and showing equality with God. And the Jewish religious leaders know it. That's why they said, we are stoning you not because of your good work, but because you are mere man claimed to be God. He gave another proof that Jesus is divine, that he is God. If you yourself have any doubt about the divinity of Jesus Christ, remember, not only did Jesus say that he and the Father are one, God himself declared to be one with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. 
The apostle John showed that Jesus was God because Jesus was able not only to forgive sins, but he was able to purify people from their sins. Look at what he said in 1 John chapter 7 and 9. I'm sorry, 1 John verse chapter 1 verse 7 and 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. One thing the people of the church knew was that it was only God could forgive sins. Mark chapter 2 verse 7 says, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And when Jesus was talking about the fact that he could purify sins, he's not only talking about forgiveness, but he's bringing to mind atonement. Christ, our sacrifice, have been sacrificed for us. And because of this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. So we are seeing how everything is coming together. Then he talked about from verses 5 to 7 about light and darkness. John really hit them here in the gut when he brought up this whole thing about light and darkness. He showed that Jesus, who was God, and also man, walked in light, not in darkness. It was well understood that darkness had to do with that which was evil and not good. But light had to do with what was good and godly and not evil. So this Christ was God, but he was also human. So we saw that he's eternal. We saw that he purifies sins, he forgives sins. We saw that he is, he is the son of God, which makes him God. And we also saw that he is light and not darkness. I would like you to take note what John did as he wrote the defense to the early church. John was very smart. He put side by side the fact that Jesus is God with the fact that Jesus is, is human. Notice that he mentioned aspects of Jesus' divinity and mentioned right next to it facts about his humanity. By using statement about his divinity and humanity in the same sentence was a strategy the apostle used to show that Jesus was fully man and fully God. That's why he was able to say in John chapter 1, uh, hold on, I lost my spot here. That's why he was able to say one sentence, I want you to pay attention. That which was from the beginning, eternity, which we heard here with our voices, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So right there in, those, in that one verse he used, Christ, things about Christ's humanity and Christ's divinity. Jesus showed, and I'm going to break it down now for you. 
He wanted to show the reason why he had to assert the humanity of Christ was to defeat this false teaching that was going on about Gnosticism. They were very, very excited to talk about Jesus being spirit, but they were not excited to talk about him being flesh. He was a spirit, they said, that walked the earth. But John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, we know that. John, who was one that Jesus chose to be one of the 12. And John, who was selected to be one of the three that Jesus is in a circle that followed Jesus wherever he went. Peter, James, and John. We would say that John, this disciple apostle part of the inner three had more right to speak about Jesus and his humanity than anybody else had a right to do so. He declared to all who would listen and as he would write that Jesus was fully man. In 1 John, and we read those verses before, they all verified that Jesus was fully man. First of all, in John 1, he said, Jesus, he heard Jesus, so therefore Jesus spoke. Then he talked about, we have seen him with his eyes in verse 1. And in verse 2, he said, we have seen and declaring that I was a primary witness. I was there. I saw him with my own two eyes. And it's interesting that John used two different words when he spoke about seeing and looking upon Christ. He talked about um, which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked at and touched with our hands. Why use two different words? Well, he did it for a reason. The first word seen is the Greek word horaho. It means just to see with your eyes and your mind, rather to, and also to come to know by experience, for example. So the seeing is not just looking, but it's seeing and experiencing something as a first hand witness. It would be like, you know, something, you ever see TV when something happens, say some murder or something happened, there is always somebody to come up on TV or a fire took place that they could give a first hand account. Why? Because they were there. They saw it. They experienced it. But you who are looking at it on TV, you, did, you were not there. You, ex you saw it, but you did not experience it. That's the kind of seeing he's talking about. We not only saw, we were there. We are first-hand witnesses, and I can tell you about what we saw. Then he went on, and he said, we looked. What we have looked at, meaning they not only saw him closely, up close, but they looked at him closely. The word is Tim. That is the Greek word. It means to look upon, to view attentively. It has the idea of visiting with and meeting with a person. What he is saying is that he not only saw Jesus with his eyes, but he observed him. We would say he scrutinized him. He looked at everything he did. Then he went on to say more. We not only saw him and experienced him. We not only scrutinized his life and watched him and figured out he was fully man, we also touched him, he said. He was flesh and blood, therefore, he was not a specter, he was not a 
ghost. He was not a spirit. He said, and our hands touched him. He literally meant what that word touched means. It literally meant that they felt Jesus. They touched his body. We handled him with our hands. He was not a ghost or a spirit. Rather, he was fully man. It's almost as though you could hear John saying, I was close to him for three years, can testify to the fact that he was flesh and bones. And more than that, he went on to say in verse 7 that um, he bled the blood of Jesus, he said, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It was a reminder to all his listeners that Jesus suffered and Jesus died on a cross. Who can argue against John, the last living apostle? One who walked with Jesus for three years. One who heard Jesus for three years. One who saw him and touched him for three years. One who, who witnessed others touching him three years. He saw him eat meals three years. They saw the miracles he did three years. The only apostle to witness Jesus suffer and bleed at the cross was John. He was saying he was not only God, but he was man as well. Because he saw him bleed. Spirits don't bleed. Spirits don't eat. You can't touch spirits. So he was trying to tell them, I have told you that he is God. But now I'm telling you he's fully man. You see, saints, the Gnostics were attacking. And the attack was a subtle plot of Satan to say that you don't need to take Christ as Savior. All you need to gain this higher knowledge and all will be well with you. Just gain this higher knowledge and you don't have to worry. That is how one comes to salvation. What was even worse was the fact that they were teaching that they could commit any sin, live any kind of life, and it did not affect their salvation. For it is not the body that goes to heaven, but the spirit. Since the spirit is all good, what does it matter that the body does? If you think that does not resonate with us today, you look on TV and people talk about people can live like a hellion on earth. And then they said, oh, the person of God to heaven. How can you go to heaven when you have lived like a hellion? You didn't give a hoot about who God is. And that is what we have come to today. If you just live good, if you just live right, if you just do things right, you're, you're going to heaven. No, 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 good people go to hell. Surprise. It is only through Jesus Christ, when you have taken Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is the difference. And what this church was teaching back then is still what's going on today. That people think if they do right, if they live right, that somehow that is going to make them right for heaven. No, 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 no. You could be the worst sinner. You could be the best person. But you take Jesus Christ as your Savior. That is the only way you're going to heaven. And this is what the church back then was teaching, that John himself had to write this treatise to tell him, no, you can't live like hell and think you're going to go to heaven and think because of the spirit is good and the body is evil that gives you the right to do whatever you want. No, 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 no. There is only one way and it's through the man, the son of God, Jesus Christ. The apostle made it clear 
that it's only through Christ's death on the cross can one be saved, made right for heaven. He made it abundantly clear in verses 7 all the way to verse 9. The last point, Jesus Christ, our Savior, listen to what he says. I'm going to go back to verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, meaning Jesus Christ, is faithful and just, will forgive you your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness, not some, not a few, not 99%, but all of your unrighteousness, he says. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. The blood of Jesus Christ, he paid the price for our sins, so says the Bible, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. What is the importance of the mention of the blood of Jesus Christ? To show that it was not a spirit, but it was his body that was broken and bruised, suffered and died for your sin and mine. Jesus bled. Spirits don't bleed. Jesus died. Spirits don't die. Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 28, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. John 10, chapter, 7, John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. The reason my father loves me, Jesus said, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up, and this command I receive from my Father. Also, it talks about Jesus. He atoned for our sins. When it says he purifies us from all sins, I want to go to the Greek word so that you can get the deep meaning of what it was saying here. The Greek word is katarizo. And what is important, what is the importance of speaking of the fact that he purifies us is that it has a sense of cleansing for both the physical and the spiritual, right? Remember the Gnostics believe that the body is bad. You don't have to do anything to it. It's only the spirit is good, trying to intimate that Jesus Christ died only for the spirit. No, this word is showing that there is a combination that Jesus died for the body as well as the spirit. Physical in the sense of like a leper who has a leprosy, that kind of cleansing, that things that affect the body negatively. But also he died for the moral sense of sin, the sense of the spirit the sin of the soul, the sin of the mind. The word katarizo means to purify from wickedness, to purify from the guilt of sin, to be able to declare clean. The apostle John used that word katarizo because to, to show that the cleansing was for both the body and the spirit. 
Jesus died for the cleansing of the body and the soul. Both had become corrupted when Adam and Eve sinned. When they sinned, all of us became sinners. When Jesus came, he came not only for the spirit, for the, but for the body as well. The salvation, that cleansing that Jesus brought, remember the Bible verse that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, not a few people, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So when Jesus came, it was not just for a few. He came to die for every single person. Anyone who would take him as Savior, it matters not what you have done. Jesus had paid the price already. There is nothing else to be done. Jesus did it all. Because man was sinful and needed a redeemer, Jesus had to come not only as a man but as God. For only... And because God was without sin, all of us had become tainted. Imagine when Adam and Eve sinned and all of us became sinners. There had to be someone who would come and offer themselves as a sacrifice unto the Lord. It had to be a man, perfect, without sin and without stain. Can you tell me one person that you know of? who have never thought a wrong thought, you know where I'm going, who have never spoken a wrong word, who have never done a wrong deed, do you know of anyone? So therefore, if Jesus never came, there would be no one, no one to die for us. But Jesus came. His sacrificial atonement for sin, God requested the shedding of blood of a sacrifice that was without blemish, without stain, and without sin. Only God was and is without sin. And only man could fulfill fully the requirement of a blood sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, he was fully God, fulfilling the requirement of a sinless, stainless, hallelujah, untinted sacrifice. But he was also fully man in that it had to be and there had to be the shedding of blood. When he died, his blood paid the price for your sin, for all sins, for all men, for all time. No one ever has to offer sacrifice ever again because Jesus paid it all once and for all. We like to put gradation on sin. You know, this sin is worse than the other one, and that one is worse than the other one. Listen, Jesus looked at sin on the same level. There is no sin worse than the other. You tell a lie, it is as guilty as killing somebody else. That's how serious it is. Jesus paid it all for saints. And that's what the point he wanted to bring across to the church. There is no special knowledge to gain. Jesus paid it all. 
There's no special mystical experience to have. Jesus paid it all. Christians do not have to reach nirvana. Jesus paid it all. Christians don't have to be on a, an eternal cycle of reincarnation. Reincarnation, Jesus paid it all. Christians don't have to kill others to gain a higher place in paradise. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Christians don't have to go through the ritual of the day of atonement and all the religious holidays. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Christians don't have to be walking the streets selling books to promote the gospel to get into the 144,000. Jesus paid it all, saints. Christians don't have to penalize themselves with floggings and self-punishment to show devotion that I'm so committed to God. No, Jesus paid it all. We got to get serious about the things of God. We got to get serious about this Jesus that we worship and we claim to come to church every Sunday for. You have to be able to understand who he is and what he has done. And that young people today, do you believe there are many young people who don't believe in a literal hell? They think that a God is too loving to send people to hell. But as I said before, God does not send anybody to hell. People make the choice to go there. Or, or young people have become so turned up with the bombarding of the media that somehow they think that homosexuality is all right. Somehow people have this, this affection for same sex now. Read the Old Testament and read the New Testament. God saw that as an abomination. So whether people want to believe certain things outside of the Bible or not, they can't believe. But when you stand before God, you still have to give an account. So what has happened over the generations, with every generation, the faith gets weaker. With every generation. So young people, this is why I came here today. You are the next generation. You are the next generation of pastors. You are the next generation of churchgoers. You are the next generation to uphold the faith. You are the next generation to teach the faith. What are you going to teach? Are you going to get sucked into every whim and whiff of, of society? Because now it's a popular thing, people preaching about same-sex marriage and all of that. Please don't think I have any hatred for people who are struggling with homosexuality. I don't, because it's as much a sin as lying. But the Bible says it's wrong. And not because everybody have made laws and they're talking about it and showing all these things of people being beaten and, and compassion and all of that to grab at your heart. It is still wrong. Scripturally. Does God hate a homosexual? Absolutely not. He loves them, but he hates the sin. Does God love a murderer? Yes, he does. He loves them, but he loves the sin. Does God love, love an adulterer? Yes, he does. He loves them, but he, loves, he hates the sin. You get what I'm trying to say? So don't think because people say, oh, those Christians are so narrow-minded. They're intolerant. Blah, blah, blah. But they don't understand. If you're a man and woman of God, you can't be swayed with every wind and whiff that comes across the screen. You have to be able to stand strong and say, I, don't agree. I love you, but I don't agree with you. And no matter what you say, I'm not going to agree with you. So young people, you are it. You are it. Give it 10 years, 15 years, you are it. 
I know you said, oh, the loudmouth preachers come this Sunday. But you might be one of the loudmouth preachers up here. In 10, 15 years, you are our pastors. In 10, 15 years, you are our missionaries. In 10, 15 years, you are our teachers. What are you going to pass on? What kind of faith are you going to pass on? I want to challenge you to begin to study who this Jesus Christ is. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is God? Why do I come to church? And don't just take it for granted, but you ought to be able to know so that you can rightly and biblically defend the faith you stand for. Because we are not able to do it, that's right, all this nonsense that goes on on TV, people run after it. Who is this Jesus? Do you know Jesus Christ as your savior? Because it's not everybody is going to heaven. I want you to know that. It's not because you come to church, you're going to heaven. It's not because your mom and dad are Christians, you're going to heaven. It's not because you're American, you're going to heaven. It's not because you do good things, you're going to heaven. It's not because you're a kind person, you're going to heaven. It's not because you obey the law, you're going to heaven. The only way you go to heaven is through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes unto the Father but by me. Who is this Christ? He was fully man and fully God. And yet he came and he died for one reason and one reason only, because he loves you. Why, if I were living in heaven, and I'm speaking as a human being here. I am living in heaven. All the pleasures of heaven. Don't have to deal with sin and disagreeable people. Why would I leave heaven to come down to heaven and die for people who won't appreciate it? But God did. So if nobody loves you, people put you down, you just tell him, you may not like me, but I know three people who do. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not go to hell, but shall have everlasting life. Where are you today? Where are you today? Where are you today? If we were to do your funeral today, can pastor boldly stand and say, I know without a shadow of a doubt that they have definitely gone to heaven. Goodness and kindness and sweetness do not get you to heaven. Accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior does. That's the only way. Amen. I want to close in this manner. Heads bowed, please.
I just want with a show of hands, those who would say, first of all, I want to make a new commitment to my Lord Jesus Christ. Just lift your hands. I want to make a new commitment to my Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you. This is a private moment between you and the Lord. I'm not asking you to come forward or nothing. I'm making a new commitment to Christ this morning. Thank you. Father, I pray, dear Lord God, for these sons and daughters of yours who are making a new commitment to you, dear Lord Jesus. Sometimes, Father, sometimes, Jesus, we forget. We forget who you are, that you're holy and you're righteous. We forget that you came and you suffered and you died for us. We forget God, and sometimes we get into the habit of coming to church, God, and we get out of studying the word and being in the word so that we're able to rightly defend the gospel. And, Father, as we stay in your word, people don't realize that is how the fire of God comes within you because you see the majesty of, of you. We see the majesty of your glory. We see that you're God, and we see that you're man, and we saw that you came and you suffered when you didn't have to do it, but you did it for me dear Lord God. As we get into the world, oh God, there's a fire that comes in our soul because we see you in all your glory and might. So I pray, dear Lord God, for the ones who raise their hands, oh God, for a new commitment to you, oh God. I pray for fire and flame to enter them, oh God. I pray that you would give them a passion for your word like they haven't had in a long time, oh God. That your spirit will illumine the word to them. That when they read the word, it will jump off the page, oh God. And embrace them, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray as they come into the word that a strong relationship between you and them will begin to develop as they take time away and sit and ponder your word and meditate on it. So, Father, I pray, oh God, that you would take that time and make it a special time between you and them, oh God. I pray for parents, God. I pray for parents, God, who's carrying the burden to see their children come to Christ, who's carrying the burden of seeing their children not being churchgoers, but getting excited about the things of God, Father. Oh, God, parents who are crying out because they want to see their children became solid men and women of God, solid in the word and solid in prayer, not just...